and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We all know that as relationship-based therapists, it's not always easy to work with a narcissistic client whether that's an individual or couples therapy. One moment, they draw you in with their charm and charisma. The next, they can challenge you, potentially even damaging your therapeutic self-esteem. When working with partners in this type of relationship, the first step toward healing from a narcissistic partner's toxic influence and to protect themselves from future harm is to accept that you are not to blame for the partner's narcissistic behavior. Drawing on more than two decades of studying the landscape of narcissism and working with both narcissistic clients and survivors, our guest today, Dr. Ramani Dervasula, explores how narcissists hijack our well-being and offers a healing path forward. We are going to unpack the often misunderstood personality, revealing the telltale behavior patterns that indicate you may be dealing with a narcissist. Along the way in our episode today, you'll learn how to become your client's advocate to help them create and maintain realistic boundaries while discerning unhelpful behaviors from narcissistic behaviors and helping recover their sense of self after constant invalidation. Thriving or even surviving during a narcissistic relationship can be challenging, but Romani will tell us outlined in her new book called It's Not You, How That's Possible. She invites the reader to stop trying to change the narcissistic person. Start giving yourself permission to let go of the hold they have on you and to finally embrace your true self. Dr. Ramani Durasula is a licensed clinical psychologist in Los Angeles, California. She's a professor emerita of psychology at California State University and the founder and CEO of Luna Education Training and Consultant. I uh, mentioned her new book. She's also a very popular educator in social media and the internet and author of several books, including what you might have heard of, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. And Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism Entitlement And the focus, obviously, of her clinical, academic, and consultant work is the ideology and impact of narcissism and uh, high conflict. On our show, we like to tap into strength and health. And I think sometimes when you're talking about narcissistic relationships, it's gloom and doom. But I think in the episode, you'll see how Ramani works and tap into a sense of hope for you as the therapist and your clients if you're dealing with a narcissistic relationship. We will be back after the interview. 
Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So happy to be talking to Dr. Ramani, and she is the foremost expert, both educating the public and a training therapist in working with clients with narcissistic personality disorder and as systemic therapist MFTs. We know that not everyone that has narcissistic traits, in fact, many people believe, as we'll talk to today, most successful people in life have a touch of, or maybe more than a touch of narcissism, but we'll talk about it in the context of especially working with couples, as many as our audience does. But Romani, the first question that we always ask our guests is about their therapeutic origin story. Where did you get an interest in psychotherapy, but also specifically working with narcissism? I think I had an interest in psychology before I had an interest in psychotherapy, to be quite frank with you. I did my training and education at, I got my PhD and master's degree at UCLA, and then did all a lot of my clinical training with various UCLA-affiliated programs and VA hospitals and things like that. And I think that at that point, I was still very much a researcher. I still don't know that we do the greatest job always in training therapists. I think we put therapists on edge with the rules and the order that we don't train people to simply bring their authentic selves in the room and really push people to do that, like actually push training as part of training therapy alongside that. So you can set the authentic self and the therapist free so they can bring that into the room. At least that's what I believe. And so I have to say that in the beginning, for me, training therapy was a bunch of things I was doing wrong all the time. And so I was scared. But over time, obviously, I saw the potency of it. I was in therapy, obviously, for myself for a long time. That was very helpful. I thought, why am I not learning what is happening for me in this room and instead learning these manualized therapies and, you know, the step-by-step approach, which really doesn't seem to work. And boy, did I learn that in, you know, in an absolute way when I started doing work with people who are experiencing narcissistic relationships. There was no manual. So I think for me, the origin story was I became a, um, I was a psychology major. I got my PhD at UCLA. I did my research in a very specific area that initially wasn't that related to personality, Personality was a backwater when I was in graduate school in terms of studying it as an independent inquiry in terms of psychopathology. However, when I started my first professorship, a few years in, I got very interested into it because I was seeing students who were actually working in a community site we had, and they were working with a lot of what we would probably have once in the day called cluster B clients. These were very dysregulated, entitled, disruptive, frankly, at times mean patients. I could see the the effect they're having on my staff, and it dawned on me they're having the same effect on everyone who works in that clinic, which meant one patient was absorbing a disproportionate amount of resources in clinics that were already stretched thin. And I thought, why hasn't anyone studied that? Like a good researcher, I went to the literature, and there was very little there. And I realized my mentor in graduate school was right. Personality is a backwater. I said, let's make it a frontwater. And so I started researching it. But simultaneous to that, I, act, I was actually running the MFT program at our university. And as part of, at least in California, there was a requirement that the, the director of the program also be an active clinician. So I was also running a practice and, and back to loving it without feeling like every move was being scrutinized, was able to take everything I had learned and really bring it to bear in those rooms. But what I was seeing over and over again were the same patients talking about similar relationships and not just partners. I would say probably 80% of it was that. But a lot of it was also family members. It was the same patterns that they were struggling with, invalidation and destabilization and minimization and dismissiveness and entitlement. And they kept blaming themselves and they kept doubting themselves. I'm like, why isn't anybody teaching 
these clients about narcissism because I found with the vast majority of them, as I got to know a lot about the person in their life, that's what fit. And when they heard that, they said, oh, the big takeaway was this really isn't going to shift that much. And that's what we've seen in the research. It doesn't really change. And armed with that, I thought, why is nobody working with this particular clinical population? I still remain a, a retainer practice. It's a lot smaller than it once was in its heyday. But, but that was a story. I actually came in through the back door and I enjoyed my research training more than I enjoyed my therapy training. And again, I have a lot to say about how we do that wrong. And, and so now, though, I got into this area and I'm really loving training therapists and more than anything, a lot of therapists who are drawn to this work of working with survivors of these relationships have had some of it themselves. And so they re- very much bring their whole selves into it. And it's been incredibly rewarding for me. I love that backstory. We talked to many scientists, practitioners on the show, and you're seeing something clinically and you want to study it. We have a lot of listeners on the show that are young therapists in training or working on their license. And and many times in these free to low cost clinics where you see a lot of these clients, they present over and over because it's a free low cost and they go through therapist after therapist and they event and where you got interested in studying it as a reality for many of our clinicians. So let's just define broadly because that term narcissism is used as like a catch-all as a term for someone who's self-involved or overconfident sometimes. So let's define it though for our listeners, what exactly is narcissism and how can you recognize it in your clients and then even yourself as a therapist? Yeah. So narcissism is in fact a personality style. Yes, there is something called narcissistic personality disorder, but that's a separate entity. It's a separate phenomenology that requires a more structured approach to diagnosis think the vast majority of us, because we either A, might ha- may not have these clients long enough, or we, we, we don't want to waste time searching for the five out of nine that we always do with personality disorders, is narcissism is a personality style that's characterized by variable, shallow, inconsistent empathy, um, which is typically low empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, validation, and admiration-seeking egocentricity or selfishness. There's often a need for power, dominance, and control in relationships. Their relationships are not about mutuality, but their relationships for a narcissistic individual are about how it serves them. Empathy is very constrained, and really empathy can show up when they need something or they feel well-supplied or well-regulated, then they might actually seem that as though their empathy is within normal limits. And narcissistic people are also very driven by what they think the world wants. It goes back to that admiration and validation seeking. All of these things I'm describing are stable, pervasive, and consistent. The challenge is that with the narcissistic personality, what we see is because of the validation and admiration seeking, a capacity to turn on and off the more undesirable qualities, which include things like poor anger regulation, strong shows of emotion, rejection sensitivity, and hyperreactivity in the face of disappointments. And what happens is that when the narcissistic person is attempting to get validation or admiration, or they're in a group or they're holding court, they really will keep a very good mask on. And then in privacy, when the person they're with, they feel is expendable, if you will, they won't go anywhere. They don't value them. The narcissistic person will show very dysregulated rage. So this is unlike other dysregulated personality styles, where the rage is often, it's overwhelming. The person will do it in front of strangers. They'll do it in front of others. In the narcissistic individual, there's almost a higher level of ego functioning where they can pick and choose. Now, over time, 
if the ego injuries become sufficient enough, if there isn't enough time for the narcissistic person to become resupplied, you will see that sort of uniform rage shows up everywhere. But for the longest time, they can turn it on and off, and which shows there's an intentionality and an awareness in this style. So it is higher functioning than, for example, the pure borderline personality style. But that's what the personality style is. Is it a disorder? If you sit with them long enough, you get the five out of nine on the DSM, you determine these kinds of antagonistic trait presences, it's consistent, you show social and occupational impairment, sure, yes, it's a diagnosis. But I actually think that we see in the ICD-11, Eli, that the, all the named personality disorders are now gone, except for borderline personality disorder, which has an evidence base and a more clear clinical phenomenology. So I'm hoping that we are singing a requiem at this point for the narcissistic personality disorder. I don't think it helps. Now, the, the challenge when you have, as you said, we used to call these cluster B personality disorders, when something is egocentric part of you versus something that's ego dystonic, like anxiety or depression. I know I'm depressed. I know I'm anxious. I might not know what I'm going to do about it, but I'm aware of it. Something like narcissism, that literally everybody else can see it except for you, the narcissist. But what you're saying is very interesting on this continuum from something that would cross over the line of impairment to narcissistic personality disorder, which we're not talking about today. We're talking about narcissism in its contained way, which when you were talking, it made me think of a lot of the couples that come in and say, my partner, they hold it together at work. They hold it together in polite society, but I am the container for their rage. So what you're saying spoke to me right away. Part of my practice is working with mental health professionals and therapists. They have held space for all these other people and they are therapeutic, but then they have these tendencies and their partner, people outside of their therapy life also are the container for this stuff. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you believe in this concept of healthy narcissism that many successful people that if it doesn't go over the line is a driver in what makes them successful? I think that narcissism is a driver in what makes them successful. I don't think it's healthy narcissism. I think it's narcissism. And in our society, we value and incentivize traits that will make people money. It's a capitalistic society after all. So I don't, it's a competitive society. It's an alpha society. So I actually don't believe in the phenomenon of healthy narcissism. I think it's narcissism. And I think narcissism largely because of that entitlement and that, and the shallow or non-existent empathy at times, it's never going to be healthy. That's it. Because those things are, one thing I will tell you about the research is there's very interesting research that was done in 2017 by Krizan and Herlosh. And I really enjoyed their study because it was looking at this model. They were looking at both vulnerable and grandiose narcissism. But what they found to be the unitary construct that united all narcissism was entitlement. There's no version of that as healthy right? An entitled person thinks they're better than others. They think they're more special than others, that they should be accorded special treatment, that they're more important. That's never going to be healthy. Now, successful people believe that and they're willing to bulldoze their way through a group and they're willing to hurt anyone they need to when they compete and they will do whatever they need to get to the top. That certainly is what makes them successful. They may not break a sweat when they have to fire people. That probably is what made them successful. I don't think those things are healthy. I think we have an unhealthy system. You're talking about systems before. Our systems in this country, in this culture, are unhealthy. And because this is an unhealthy system, an unhealthy trait like narcissism is flourishing and making people successful. There's no such thing as healthy narcissism. It would be a bit like saying there's a thing called healthy depression or healthy psychosis. 
Those things aren't healthy. And in fact, I'd say those are unhealthy for the person holding them. Healthy narcissism, I think what people might be thinking is, this is more like assertiveness, like a person who is assertive in a healthy way or goal-directed in a healthy way. But frankly, most narcissistic people are neither assertive in a healthy way, nor are they goal-directed in a healthy way. So I actually think, think, no, I don't think it is a concept. Yes, I I wanted your take on that because people will say, uh, how am I going to then, as the therapist, frame this, which is universally a negative connotation, narcissism. I have, this is egocentric. If I have a client that has very little self-awareness to this, and we can think of a client in general before we talk about specifically couples therapy, but let's say I have a client and they clearly have these qualities and they don't own them and they present in therapy, how am I going to present this in a way that is palatable to them and bring some of these non-desirable qualities to their awareness. I, I want to go back to your prior question for a quick minute and come back to this question, which is we're talking about healthy narcissism. What that would imply then is that there's a form of pathologic narcissism. And in the clinical and theoretical li- literature, there's long been a tradition of talking about pathological narcissism as that more what we're talking about, this like this entitlement, grandiosity, dysregulation, maltreatment of others at a clinically meaningful level. Okay, so now going back to what you're saying is, how is the therapist then to bring this to the attention of the narcissistic individual in therapy? One thing is don't use the term. I can think in, in, in the many years I have been licensed and practicing and all of that, there were probably only two to three clients that were high functioning and self-aware enough that were also narcissistic that were able to tolerate that frame to actually use that languaging. And the vast majority of clients, that's really not possible. And probably the best thing we can do is pull out the behavioral strands. And oftentimes when I've worked with narcissistic clients, it's really about bringing things up episodically. After you do a lot of trust and rapport building, is that then they'll bring in whatever, the mistreatment of a how they spoke to a spouse or a child or a colleague, and that caused some a backlash for them. And then to really work with them on, you know, a lot of the evidence base for narcissism, what little that there is often in mentalization-based forms of therapy, which is creating self-reflective capacity in the individual. Can we, you know, are you able, can we help you see basically why this was a problem for this other person, what the nature of their reaction was, right? The narcissistic person really isn't able to step out of self long enough to witness the shame-inducing experience that their behavior might have brought out some harm in another. Narcissistic person isn't psychopathic. They don't really, in most cases of narcissism, have that sadism that we tend to see in a more psychopathic presentation, meaning that I don't care if I hurt them and I'll hurt them again. The narcissistic person isn't teeing up intentionally to hurt another person. It's just that they're so selfish. They are so self-focused that there's no, and they're so lacking in empathy, there's no accounting for the harms to others. When that harm to other comes into awareness, it brings up what Kohut talked a lot about, that shame comes up in the person and it results in rage at the person who brought that shame feeling up, for example, a spouse. So in when we look at some of these models of how can we bring this up for a person, a lot of it is, and you had talked before, you were talking about this idea of healthy narcissism. I don't think that's a thing, but I also don't think a narcissistic person is a demon. There are good qualities to them. They do pro-social things. They actually are sometimes aware. And sometimes with a narcissistic client, it was as simple as they would remember. They'd say, oh, didn't you go see your mom who was sick? How is she? I would jump on that. I'd say, thank you so much for remembering. That meant a lot to me. This is your time. 
That was really nice. So they almost would look like a child, a proud child who got an A on their spelling test. Because look at me, I got my empathy right with the therapist. That then becomes, I put that in the vault. And later on, when they're showing deficits in empathy, I'm able to say, yo, listen, I know you're empathic. I know you track. You just asked me about my mom. And now what's this? Let's break this down. What's happening? So that's what I'm saying is these narcissistic clients are giving us these nuggets. Like I said, they're not psychopathic and they're not demons. There are people who have a, a, a character issue that is constantly not only getting in the way for them, but for other people. So it's very slow, Eli. We cannot put that. We cannot just put this big spotlight. Like, Look at all this narcissistic stuff you do. And the other way we do this is process work. When that client says, 11 doesn't work for me today. How about a one? You're thinking, no, there's someone at one. They'll say, just call the one and see if they'll change with me. It's not like a one-off. Like some clients will say, oh my gosh, I double booked the dentist. I am so sorry. Is there any chance of moving it? I'd work with the client. But when time and time again, there's a, a, a summary dismissal, that's the kind of stuff too you can work on and say, I set these schedules up months in advance. And so when you talk about it in therapy, they'll often become defensive. And we know that narcissistic folks are about 60 to 70% more likely to drop out of therapy. So the more you push the accelerator, the more likely you are to lose them. And then you might lose them because you just also don't want to do superficial work in therapy. It's complicated. Elsa Ronningstam probably is the best work in this area of how do we approach them, but it is very collaborative. And she'd argue goal setting needs to be collaborative. It has to be that you have to get them on board. So if they're trying to come up with sort of superficial life coachy goals, I want to make more money and I want to get more girls kind of thing. You're like, okay, no, we're, we're going to go back on this and let's understand that, but you make it more collaborative. So it can be, you're attempting to foster a therapeutic alliance. It just takes about five times as long. Talk to us about covert narcissism popularized lately in a Taylor Swift song. So I hear a lot of clients yeah. talking about this now and communal and covert are the two I'm yeah. interested in you talking about because I think they present in our offices a lot. So let's take that term covert narcissism is probably the most confusing one of all. It means more than one thing. And I think that unfortunately what's happened is it's gotten used so inaccurately that everyone's using it wrong. So let's take covert narcissism and separate it out from vulnerable narcissism. Okay. So back in the day, the term covert narcissism was being used to describe the vulnerable narcissist. And the vulnerable narcissist is different than our standard garden variety, grandiose narcissist. The grandiose narcissists are typical, arrogant, pretentious, bragging, superficial, shallow, attention-seeking, narcissistic individual. The vulnerable narcissist is, narcissistic person is more socially anxious, angry, aggrieved, resentful, sullen. They feel life has passed them by. It's more of a failure to launch. They look socially anxious and maybe even depressed. So there's a negative affectivity to the vulnerable narcissistic person. Traditionally, people have been using the term covert to describe that group. Covert, though, really, in the, in the technical sense, refers to one of two things. It's either the things we can't see about the narcissistic person ostensibly. So in other words, a covert process for a narcissistic person is what's going on in their head, right? Their thoughts, their feelings. So, in, so it's why there's so much misinterpretation in a narcissistic relationship. It's also that narcissistic people are very unclear on their motivations. They don't know why they do things. They do them because to get in touch with the why would is very shameful for them, right? Because it's not actually for the healthiest of reasons. And so all of that is this internal process we can't observe, right? So an overt behavior is, aren't I great? 
a covert process is, I hope everyone thinks that mine is the best proposal, right? So it's an internal. So now the last use of covert is that masked narcissism. And this is what we're going to more often see the usage of in our clients and probably what Taylor Swift was singing about, which is everybody thinks this person is great, but once they're behind closed doors with me, they're a monster. So they, I always call it the dinner party analogy. You're out to dinner with your partner in most cases. You're having a lovely time. In fact, some people even make playful jabs at your partner and your partner is actually delightful and getting into the banter and you're like, oh, I misjudged my partner. Gosh, maybe I'm the bad person. And the minute you get in the car on the way home, they go off. And so everyone at that dinner party thought your spouse is the most charming person in the world. On the ride home, you endure an hour of horrific verbal abuse. And so that would be an example of the covert nature of it, that the narcissistic person really only lets it show at times when the validating audience isn't present, meaning that a key person, a family member or a spouse, gets the worst of it, but other people don't really believe them. So that's, that again, covert band becomes a complicated term. To your other question about communal narcissism, this is a construct that was established, I think, around the early 2000s. Uh, by a research group in Germany, and it was very thoughtful, articulated in the sense of now the narcissistic person is harnessing this sense of validation that they get from the world, not by look at me, I'm so great, look at my accomplishments, but rather by doing this sort of self, this social, these sort of pro-social activities. They raise money for charity. They help other people. They bring meals to other people. It's interesting in the age of social media because now these communal narcissistic folks document more of it, but they've always been around. And these are the folks who are often viewed as the pillars of their community. Oh my goodness, your mother does so much for the church or the temple. Or your mother is, your father is like a pillar of our town. And they're thinking, oh my God, this is the most horrible, abusive person to us, but maybe we're the bad ones for thinking our little league supporting dad or our casserole making mom or whomever is in our family is, is not a nice person because they really do use these public goods that they do to gain validation. And if the communal narcissistic person doesn't get told, oh my gosh, you're so generous, you're so nice, they will become rather resentful, sullen, and aggrieved that nobody is noticing all the good stuff they're doing. If they're going to be a humanitarian, you better tell them they're a humanitarian. And that's the communal narcissist. At the mild end, this is somebody who is like, posting on the weekends, look at me, I'm cleaning the beach, look at me, I'm rescuing dogs, aren't I great? And everyone has to tell them they're great and they need a lot of attention for it. But at the extreme side, the most severe side of communal narcissism, you could see a cult leader, a person who's selling some self-development message or something like that and bringing in followers on that basis and getting all this validation and then obviously over time behaving in a more abusive manner as they indoctrinate people. But all narcissism, like all personalities on a spectrum, at the low end, the less severe end, it's an annoyance to the other people. At the severe end, it could be a danger. Said in the context of overt or this grandiose narcissism, I think everybody can pick up on that. You don't even need to be a, a clinician. I think what we talked about in communal and covert, I brought those up because I do think those present in the couples therapy venue a lot. And the therapist labeling the narcissist in the couples therapy, the therapist doesn't have to label because usually the partner is saying, you're so narcissistic or this or that. And that is universally, obviously a, a negative attribute and, and really difficult for the partner to take in. So let's 
move to that. Do you think couples therapy can work when one or both partners have a high degree of narcissism or should the work be done individually first? Depends on what you mean by work. By and large, I do think that couples therapy is contraindicated in more moderate to severe narcissism, whether it's one or both partners. You need one hell of a couples therapist in that room. And I can count on one hand the number of couples therapists I know that are that skilled. One in particular. He's probably the only one I think I would ever refer to. And the poor man only has so many hours in the day. So it's a risky bet, like I said, in more moderate to severe narcissism. I do believe that the initial work has to be done individually, right? Because otherwise the couples therapy becomes one more arena of tactics and strategies and power and domination. And if the couples therapist does not know what they're dealing with, and the vast majority don't, because we are not giving graduate students, trainees, people who are doing their clinical training, semester-long courses in antagonistic personality like narcissism. And if ever there was one thing, we spend a, we'll spend a semester on depression, we'll spend a semester on anxiety, which are important, we need a semester on this. Because when we think of how often narcissism pairs with other things, it really can change the flavor of it. And the same thing in couples therapy. I think it's often subsumed under high conflict, but I don't always agree with that because there's an assumption that both parties are engaged in a volatile, conflictual relationship. And that's not the case at all. It's really one person's character issues coming in and they're completely steamrolling the other person. And I think that so much of couples therapy is predicated on some level of equal contribution by both people in that relationship, it's simply not true. One person is really playing a very different and far more cruel ground game than the other person. And the other person didn't get the manual for this. And I am not a fan of it. And I, the rare times I would give the referral, it's because I've got the strong referral. But throwing people out there to flail in the world of couples therapy with a narcissistic partner, especially if they don't know what it is. Also, if the let's say it's one narcissistic person and one not in a marriage or a long-term committed relationship. If I know the not narcissistic partner, okay, the healthier, if you will, partner is prepared. I have sat with them. I have coached them. I have told them, this is what it is. This is what you're going into. So in other words, they're prepared for this. I'll sign off on it because we'll use our individual sessions to work it through. I'll even help that client prepare for their couples therapy sessions. We will make notes. We will role play. It's a lot of work and they have to be ready. And they will say, thank goodness I prepared with you because I would have gotten completely destroyed in that session. And so that's my point is most people don't have access to a therapist who's an expert in narcissistic relationships to prepare them for couples therapy. Let's talk about now some strategies, whether with an individual or a couple, when you're confronted with a, a narcissistic client with perhaps not the level of impairment would cross the line. They're, they're probably very successful and they do not realize that it is a problem, yet they are in therapy to somehow vent, complain. One, one of the things that I have learned to do in building an alliance, I'm a therapeutic alliance researcher and a clinical trainer, is that we can't like all of our clients. And many narcissistic, especially the overt and grandiose ones, it is, is a very unlikable thing. But when we can't like, I've learned to be curious. And usually people got to be that way. And as far as thinking systemically and being a family therapist, usually goes back to prior relationships of family of origin. So I, I tell my 
trainees, if you can't like, be curious. So I, I want to know where that came from and what awareness the client has. And perhaps they didn't get something growing up, but I'm curious what you think about that. And then other strategies as you start to build an alliance and start to disarm the narcissist, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Ideologically, so the origins of narcissism are often a complex, multi-determined origin story. And one of the challenges is that not only is it multi-determined, these aren't clean paths. The majority of the time, the paths I'm about to share with you don't result in a narcissistic personality. It's a story that can very successfully be told backwards. It's not an easy predictive story. Many narcissistic people come from a pathway of adversity, frank adversity, abuse, neglect, chaos, completely checked out, disconnected parents, abandonment by caregivers, that kind of thing. That usually, though, if we use almost like a, a Linehan biosocial approach, you're usually looking at an interaction between a biological vulnerability and an environmental harm, right? So the child does have some sort of vulnerable temperament. And these are usually children who were, would have more okay, difficult temperaments, externalizing behaviors, acting out, difficult to soothe. They were tougher kids. And, and that tougher kid kind of literature does show that those kids often have poor outcomes in adulthood. But if that child, that kid with the more the biological vulnerability, the more difficult temperament is thrown into one of these environments with this chaos, the probability goes way up of creating this more dysregulated, antagonistic, potentially narcissistic child in adulthood. These kids who come from this combination of biological vulnerability and environmental adversity kinds of combinations, this is where you tend to see a little bit more of the vulnerable narcissism, malignant narcissism. Now, flip into the other pathway, which is a pretty potent one, an interesting work coming out of the Netherlands on this, which is the overindulgence pathway. Now, Kohut wrote about the overindulgence pathway too in his fashion, but what we see is that it's not just the spoiled child, though the spoiled child part matters. It's the child who's consistently told they are more special than other children. It's not that you're special, all children are special, it's that you are more special. No lines for you, no teacher you don't want for you. These are kids who are often whose needs are indulged, but not their emotional needs. So the parent themselves is a rather superficial parent. It's about achievements and do this, and you're more special, and you deserve more than anybody else. So they look materially spoiled. Emotionally, these are often underindulged kids. Likely, there are also disruptions in attachment processes. The parents may be so self-focused that they're not actually doing the heavy lifting of parenting. They're just doing this kind of, you're special and here's a special thing for you, this kind of parenting. Both of these pathways have been shown to predict narcissism. And in any client I've worked with who's narcissistic, it always traced back to one of these. There's no two ways about it. You were not hearing about securely attached, stable childhoods, predictability. That was not the case. And so narcissism does have that origin. And there are some people out there who would argue that narcissism, especially at the more moderate to severe ends of the presentation, represents a post-traumatic kind of a manifestation. Okay. So that's the etiology. Now this goes into an interesting place, Eli. You're saying, and I love what you tell your trainees and the students and folks you work with, which is if you can't like them, be curious about them because that really matters here. Now here's what get, where it gets challenging where we may be curious about them, they're not curious about themselves. Grandiose narcissistic folks tend to use therapy as a place to be storytellers. And storytelling, as we know in therapy, is a way to be filler, right? It's superficial, 
They either regale you with tales of their past or their present, but you're really not connecting that to emotion and feeling and allowing them to explore deeper work and then result in meaningful behavioral change and insight and all of that. They want to engage in storytelling. For many grandiose narcissistic folks who may have actually also come from rather adverse, neglectful childhood histories, and by neglectful, I often mean emotionally neglectful, the grandiosity means that they don't want that narrative punctured. If you move too quickly into interpretations about mom or dad or whomever the primary caregivers weren't on point, you are likely to encounter a lot of defensiveness. My father was a great man. My father built up a business from nothing. Meanwhile, dad was abusing him and abusing mom and screaming at everyone. They don't want that because, again, that's going to bring up shame. And I've got to tell you, I've worked with some narcissistic clients six, seven, eight years, and we could not penetrate that defense, which really left the the therapeutic work quite stuck. They drop out, come back in, drop out, come back in. But we couldn't get through to there. Now, the other piece, and this is actually some interesting work because helicopter parenting is a relatively new phenomenology. It's probably only the last 20, 25 years. But what we're starting to see is the first crop of adults come out of the helicopter parents. And what we're seeing is an interesting vulnerable narcissism coming out of that kind of parenting because these kids feel so ineffectual. Mom or dad or parent or caregiver took care of everything. They took care of everything. They helped with the college applications. They helped with this. They helped with that. So it was an overindulgent parent, but very focused on specific outcome or look how special you are. One day they walk out into the big bad world, not so special. None of us are. And so we're special, but we're not, we're no more special than anyone else. And when the world isn't delivering on that, the vulnerable narcissistic folks feel this inner core of inadequacy or ineffectualness. And that this sort of results in this self-loathing and then anger at these parents for fostering that and often disproportionate anger. There's no taking responsibility for oneself. So when we do these historical explorations, either you have people who view themselves as the ultimate victims of parents who were maybe helicoptery, but were actually relatively well-intentioned. So either they were the ultimate victims of these terrible parents who often feel entitled, like if my parent had only set me up with a trust fund or used their connections to get me into Harvard or something like that, you'll see that group. And then you'll see the group of my father was a great man. Meanwhile, their father was abusive and you can't penetrate there. So even the dynamic historical exploration can be really fraught with narcissistic clients. So the goal, not only for you to be curious about your client, to help your client, if they're not naturally that way, be more curious about their narrative. So it's interesting. Yes, they're either the victim of their story or uh, sometimes the hero, but they're unwilling to explore different ways of looking at that narrative. Now, you have done so much to help the general public. Usually when the partner, as we're talking about the couples of a narcissist, is reading a book, the last chapter is always leave. It is not very hopeful to be able to stay in. And we know it's one of the things in our field, couples therapy is built around problem-solving communication techniques. And really in the last 20 or 30 years, the work of acceptance and tolerance. And People can accept and tolerate a lot unless it's something unsafe or soul crushing, as I call it. But how would you work with a partner who wants to really stay in a relationship with a narcissist? Because a lot of times the advice, both in self-help books for people that don't go to therapy or even from a therapist, is to exit the relationship. So that's not my advice. I'm going to tell you now the last chapter of my book is never leave. 
the last I know, chapter. That's why I asked you, because I know that you have hope and health, which is what the field is about and is also what our therapists want to imbibe in their clients. But I also think, Eli, there's something deeper here. Can you talk about systems? We also have to account for culture and we have to account for differences in terms of how the construct of marriage, family, relationship dissolution are all focused on. In my heart of hearts, do I always, I have to say, and I have to, from a process and even counter-transferential position, I have to recognize that I look at some of my clients and I know, my gosh, there's nothing but pure potential in this person that's being held back by living with a person who limits them and rages them and that this person still feels they can appease or please. So first of all, to me, leaving or staying are almost irrelevant. For The focus on me is shoring up the individual in the relationship and breaking them out of their cycles of self-devaluation and self-blame that have been fostered by years of indoctrination of being in a relationship like this. And so I do think people can stay. Now, am I going to be honest with you that if people get away from the narcissistic person, they'll be healthier? Sure, absolutely. I can only sugarcoat this to a point. But even that said, some people will say the number of losses they had to mount up to leave the relationship actually resulted in a whole new host of stressors. So I really meet clients where they're at. And some folks, they'll say, I'm not ready now, but maybe I will. And the ongoing conversation is what then facilitates them to be a different observer of their relationship. I really work with clients above all else. After we really get through some of the initial psychoeducation, this is what you're dealing with. These are the patterns and let's observe them together. Eli, I spend so much time in session. People bring in text messages. They bring in email sequences. They bring in voicemails. These are incredibly helpful to us. The field of mental health has let down these survivors for so long by doubting them and saying, the relationship has two people and maybe what you were saying was affecting them too. You only need to see in all these messages to say, no, this is very asymmetric. And by definition, narcissistic relationships are asymmetric because these clients are desperate for validation. They're not always looking to leave. They don't want to feel, quote unquote, crazy anymore. And so we as therapists can do a lot of education, validation, not questioning them, never, ever, ever asking the question, why aren't you leaving? Why didn't you leave? You don't think the client hasn't thought about this 15,000 times and it shames them because they feel like, well, that's the only path forward. There's a risk of them dropping out of treatment. They feel foolish when they can't leave. So the, the workarounds, the radical acceptance, as it were, is really about this ain't going to change. This is it. This is the landscape of this relationship. And most of our clients have been putting in huge amounts of psychological investment, thinking that they can turn the ship. Maybe when the kids are older, maybe when they get promoted, maybe when we move to a bigger house, maybe this, maybe that, maybe the other. None of those things are going to change this. This is a personality style that has shown is one of the most rigid and maladaptive out there. So it's not going to change. And so when we say this is not going to change, there is no magic spell you can put to change the weather, as it were. If I tell you this, and that's what I'll put, tell clients, I'll say, how is it going to affect you when I tell you none of this is going to change? Their behavior is not going to change. How is that going to affect your decision making? For most clients, there's a torrent of grief. We work through grief for many, many weeks or months after that realization. But as they come out of that grief, and it's any process of grief, right? As they work through that and they come out of it, there is a new resolve. And in that new resolve, they are willing, again, like I said, to embrace the sense of realistic expectations. Okay, so now I know, for example, I really shouldn't share this. I can't talk about them with this. The relationship gets hollowed out quite a bit. 
There's not a lot there, but there never was. The person in the relationship was engaging with someone where there was no there. So it's really supporting them if they're going to stay in the process of grief, in the process of shoring up other supports, in the process of establishing other meaningful and purposeful kinds of pursuits. For some people, that might be as simple as, I don't have a co-parent. This person is going to roll up for the photo ops every so often, but these children are 100% my responsibility. So basically, I'm single parenting with an elephant on my back, and, and which is the other parent. And, and they really give themselves over. They dev- might devote themselves to the parenting of children. They may devote themselves to work pursuits. They may devote themselves to spiritual pursuits. But what they will not do, and, and that's, this, is not, this is where you take them off the path of trying to change the unchangeable, turning this into a marriage. It's not. And the grief will be seeing other people's healthy marriages and healthy families can bring up a lot of feeling and that sense of a little bit of is this is the hand I was dealt, but also for some folks to realistically position it. Family court is very cruel to people going through these relationships. And so some people will say, I'm staying in until their 18th birthday. I've had a slew of clients on the 18th birthday. That's the day they file because there's no more custody stuff. Now it's just splitting up the the money. The kids are still hurt by a divorce. Don't get me wrong. But it's and not always. Sometimes by then the children are very aware of what their other parent is, but it's no longer these custody battles. That's a very intentional choice. Other people get themselves in a more comfortable position professionally. So when the financial rigors of one of these divorces comes up, they're not getting destroyed by it. Others reconcile themselves to in their cultures, they would lose too much support. So again, like I said, they shore themselves up in different ways. So it's our role as therapists is not that there's a one size fits all, get away from the narcissistic person, but to really understand and get to the core, break the client out of the cycles of self-blame, self-doubt. This is my fault. Maybe I can behave differently. Maybe they're going to change. When I'm done with a client, all that's out the window. And it's a lot more gloves off, very realistic approach. And listen, Eli, it isn't all easy for people who leave. If you leave a narcissistic person who doesn't want to be left, you are now entering into the likelihood of post-separation abuse, painful, expensive, brutal, volatile divorces that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on how people are resourced or leave people in financially precarious positions. And so there can be stalking, there can be harassment. So it's not as though leaving is always easy either. So the work then becomes, and this is where it's really important for clients, they feel like autonomous players in this decision. It's not one book ending up with a chapter saying, gotta get out, but rather what feels right if you know that this is the territory. I've had clients say, listen, now that I know they're not gonna change and now that I've really radically accepted this isn't my fault, I'm a little sad I didn't get a love story, but they'll say, I found other things in my life that support me. And I I hate to be cold and cruel here, Eli. They'll say then one day they're going to die and I'm not really going to care that much. And they don't. Some of their health and their lives improve significantly after the narcissistic spouse dies. This is brutal work. Yes. You said so much there. I would distill that down after listening to you. If, If you're a listener out there, you're working with a partner of a narcissistic client rather than being fixed to the outcome. Should I stay or should I go? Ramani is telling us you strengthen that individual, you work with them. Uh, and if you go through these things like the grief, the acceptance, then a decision will organically come from strengthening the individual. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's right on, spot on. The book 
is coming out right as we release this podcast here in our last few minutes. Tell us about the new book yeah. and promote anything, including your great website, your own podcast, your, your YouTube stuff, anything you want to promote. Go ahead. Thank you. I do have a new book. It's called It's Not You. I healing and understanding from narcissistic people. So please read it because one of the things I ref reference in the book is this idea of <clears throat> the tale of the hunt is always told by the hunter and not the lion. And in this case, that, that the hunter is the narcissist, right? The lion is the rest of us, is that we often tell these stories from the perspective of the narcissist. How can we understand the narcissistic person? With all of our books, if you look at the bookshelves, they're all books about narcissism. This is a book about understanding how to heal. And it's not easy. There's no magic pill. This is really about having to come and accept some really uncomfortable truth. So I am really happy to bring this into the world. And I can say that this book was the voices of thousands of people coming through me, watching what worked, what, what didn't work, the things people were told which were painful and did not help them, the things that did help them, and that this takes as long as it takes. So that is the book. It's not you. Please, oh, please go ahead, pre-order it, get it, buy it and read it if this is at all relevant to you or your clients. If you are a therapist and you are looking to get more training in how to work with clients who are experiencing narcissistic relationships, I have a long, I think it's about 36-hour training program with certification through PESI. You can take if you want, sign up and go ahead and check that out. It's not only me, but it's also uh, Dr. Kath Dr. Catherine Barrett talking about legal and ethical issues in doing this work, and Dr. Janina Fisher bringing what she knows about trauma and helping us work with these clients. We don't have this training. And so my hope is that this will really help fortify therapists who are interested in working with this population. You can go to pessy.com, get that information. And then you can also find daily content on narcissism on YouTube. We post to Instagram. We also have a healing program for survivors of narcissistic relationships. You can find me on YouTube and everywhere else at Dr. Romani. You can go to my website, drromany.com and you can get all of this information. And yeah, I mean, we have a lot of stuff out there, not just for survivors and for people going through this, but also for clinicians. And, and it's some of the most rewarding work of my career is working with clinicians because there I can see if they get it, then many more people can get helped. Eli, back with you, bringing to close another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast. You can go to Dr. Romany.com. That's D O C T O R spelled out dash R A M A N I.com. There you can find out everything, including the new book, It's Not You, that just dropped this week. Brand new. Listen to the podcast. Go out and get the book. I am working through it right now, and it is another great read. And certainly, there's some hopeful things in there too, as I mentioned at the outset, and hopefully you heard during the interview, it's not all gloom and doom when working with a narcissistic client or client system. Also like to point out that we are less than a month away from the 2024 Leadership Symposium in uh, sunny, warm Phoenix, Arizona, March 13th through the 16th. Please, it's not too late, join us. For the AMFT Leadership Symposium, it's an essential experience for those navigating the dynamic landscape of MFTs and leadership outside of the therapy room. This exceptional event is not merely a conference, right? It provides you access 
to fostering connections. We are relational by nature, but sometimes, especially post-COVID, we are practicing in isolation. So this is going to help you build connections with influential figures in the MFT community, paving the way for your professional ascent. While you're engaging with MFTs, you're drawing inspiration from insightful keynote speakers who have excelled in leadership. A few of those have actually been guests on the show before. And you're going to be able to immerse yourself in powerful breakout sessions crafted around pressing issues faced by MFTs in leadership. So it's not just about networking. It's about creating relationships, building bonds that are inherent to advocacy within the MFT profession. And while you're doing that, you can earn up to 11.5 continuing education credits. That's always important. It's an investment in your growth and the collective progress of MFTs and leadership. The whole is certainly greater than the sum of our parts as a profession. Engage, secure your spot, go to amft.org to find out everything. Also, if you're interested in going further, please check out what we mentioned on the show in the past, the Certificate of Leadership Program. It's a more intensive leadership training experience of which this symposium is a part of, but it's so much more than that. So check out our Certificate of Leadership track on amft.org as well. We'd love to hear from you. You can get a hold of me, Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can also go to EliCaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Drop us a line. Give us suggestions for future shows. You can also see everything going on with me as far as how we train therapists in this common factors way of working. You can There's online on-demand training opportunities. You're also, if you're studying for the National Licensure Exam, have a book from Springer Academic Press and a training program that goes along with that as well. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.